Suppose that a long time ago, a man named Nimrod was contemplating the history of humanity's trouble. Let's see here. We had paradise, but then our enemy got in. And innocent men built innocent altars and then died on them. Young men were killed merely for bruising powerful men. So we built cities everywhere to defend against our enemies, collectives that could defend themselves against powerful tyrants. But even then, the weak men began to dream of how they could destroy others. Then our God destroyed all of them in the flood. Our forefather Noah built an ark to escape. He used wisdom, built a giant structure, mathematically precise. Wait a minute. What if... And perhaps at this juncture of thought, poised somewhere between humility and pride, Nimrod could have decided to follow God and let God be the builder and maker of a great city. Nimrod could have been Abraham, because the story of Abraham comes immediately after the failure of Nimrod. But that is not what happened. Nimrod decided the fundamental problem of the human race was they allowed themselves to live at the mercy of God instead of uniting together and becoming independent of God. Nimrod may have further contemplated. What, what, if, what if we take the ingenuity of Noah, the paradise of Eve, let's combine them with the cities of Cain, roll all of the best ideas into one and work together on a universal scale to make a paradise city built on the technological, mathematical, precise principles of Noah. Build it to withstand any flood, elevate men to the paradise of heaven, bring all of us together in mutual cooperation. We'll be so busy making ourselves gods that we won't have time to squabble and fight over altars and fields and wells and silver, and, and, and we'll even call the city the gate of God. What if? Well, what if? Let's find out more about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast. Brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Hey, good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. You are listening to the God's Word for Life Companion Podcast. I'm your host, L.J. Harry, and this is the God's Word for Life. If you have the student guide, go ahead and turn there. Or if you're driving, don't turn there. Or if you don't have the student guide, don't turn there. But we're going to look at the lesson dated October 3rd, 2021. It is entitled, Worshiping the One True God. And it stems from the story of the Tower of Babel, from Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read one verse today, just the focus verse, chapter 11, verse 4. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. That's Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. A few phrases stand out in this verse, don't they? First of all, let us make a name for ourselves. These words sound so familiar, like we've heard let us somewhere before. How about Genesis chapter 1? When God himself was creating man, he said let us. It is as if the people at Babel were trying to remake man 
in their own image, independent of God. Secondly, the phrase, lest we be scattered abroad, reveals this fear-mongering that often forms the foundation of false religions. The necessary ingredients for a successful false religion are a threat and a proud, idolatrous promise to neutralize that threat. So let me ask you this at the beginning of our lesson. Why do you think some people get caught up in the pursuit of making a name for themselves? Now, it's important to notice that this story follows the stories of human failures and divine intervention. We might say that everything surrounding the building of Babel was an attempt to build a secular religion by replicating, on some level, the right religion of Noah. Unfortunately, though, these people only replicated Noah's technology, and they didn't didn't try to replicate his humility. That was the essence of his faith, not how well he built his boat, but how well he built his character. The Tower of Babel was an attempt at a secular religion, one that would parrot true faith, but substitute the rule of man for the rule of God. The way of the people of Babel led to where humanity's way always leads, confusion and division. When people say they want nothing to do with religion, they're probably not seeking the religion that says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But false religion confuses and divides. And this religion, the religion of Babel, is very much alive today. As a society, we may be at this moment, in fact, I know we are, completely divided over so many issues. Masks, no masks, vax, no vax, police, no police, all these different issues in the middle of yet another Tower of Babel project. Kind of gave away this next question, but in what ways do you see the spirit of Babel and division and confusion very much alive and well in our world today? Proverbs sixteen eighteen warns us pride comes before destruction. It's true on the individual level. It's also true on the societal level. Our culture is ignoring the warnings of the past and arrogantly building its own version of Babel. This tower, which is being built in an attempt to unify human beings, only leads to greater confusion. And as we saw in Babel and as we're seeing today, God will actively work against the prideful. You've probably experienced some of this opposition in your own life. Somewhere from mild resistance, such as a car full of people disagreeing where to go for dinner. If you've ever had that post-church service conversation, so where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? Until somebody says something, then everybody cares. And then there are more powerful forms of resistance, like persecution. You probably remember what it was like to have a parent resist what you wanted to do. When we were little, our parents were simply too strong. They had too much control over circumstances for us to carry on very long without caving in. But take this to another level. Imagine being opposed by, say, an angel or a demon. No amount of work on our part alone could overcome that kind of power. Yet the angel or demon is just a subordinate to an even greater power. But what if God himself opposed you? What hope do you have? What power could you call on to assist against such a power? And this is who the proud are up against. The Bible says God resists the proud. When pride enters the equation, there's no outcome except failure and destruction. They are a certainty. Thankfully, we don't have to fight against God. In fact, we can fight for him and he can fight for us. In order 
for God to be on our side rather than the other side, we would do well to resist anything God resists. God resists pride, so we walk humbly with God and with man. The Apostle Paul taught the Philippian church to esteem others as better than themselves. Is this the view you take of the average person in your life? When you walk into the grocery store, do you look at somebody else as better than you, or do you look at yourself as better than them? The apostolic way, the discipleship, the Christian way is the way of humility. We're not even called to seek equality for ourselves individually. We hope the authorities around us, our government recognizes everyone as equals, but our spiritual task as a disciple is to submit ourselves to others, not to be equal with one another, but actually submitted to one another. That's one way of ensuring we do not turn God into an enemy is we humble ourselves before others. Human culture is bound in this seemingly endless cycle of trying to forge its own way forward, but God's ways are above our ways. Another call, in addition to calling us to be humble, is a call from heaven for us to be holy. Holy is to be more like God, to be pure through the power of His Spirit. There is no rush to the altar for our world to adopt a lifestyle of humility, and certainly there's no rush to adopt a lifestyle of holiness. Thankfully, we are going the right direction in some ways. There have been a steady stream of publications and articles and magazines and newspaper articles that are denouncing the sexual exploitation of women. That's wonderful. There's a piece that complained that the NFL profits from having cheerleaders dress provocatively. Another piece accused Hollywood culture of depicting women merely as sexual objects, compelling women to dress, or more precisely undress, provocatively. Yet another column criticized Victoria's Secret for parading nearly, let's just say, unclad women around like animals in a zoo. And yet another article bemoaned the fact that our culture is so depraved that the magazines we see in the grocery store determine the profits they make by the amount of skin they reveal. You may notice how focused our cultural commentators are these days on proper male conduct, off-color jokes, off-limits. On campuses, Title IX offices are enforcing strict, no-touching, no-propositioning, no-ogling, no-flirting ordinances. Consensual relationships between a man in a position of authority and an employee or student are potentially fireable offenses, and everyone could go on and on and on. So where are we? Are we back at the Plymouth Colony? Circa 1640, under the watchful gaze of William Bradford, governor and Puritan separatist? We might feel like we are if we close our eyes real tight, use just a bit of imagination. These magazines, these articles, almost sound like the preachers of yesteryear. But this is confusing, because are not these the same publications, even recently as ten years ago, who mocked prudish Christians for teaching modesty and sexual purity? They called us silly Puritan fundamentalists and fanatical school marms with a Bible in hand for frowning on cheerleading. But now that hashtag MeToo has come, in tow with a few other cultural shifts, their tune has changed. Perhaps there is a pattern. Could the world's great discoveries simply be rediscoveries of what the biblically-oriented church wrought and taught a long time ago? The world's idea of progress is merely rehashing what the church has taught from the beginning. When the church practices holiness, the world mocks it. But then, like expert antiquers, 
Years later, the world goes through the old houses of belief, picks through our beauties, and brings them to the marketplace, trying to pass them off as products of its own genius. Perhaps this is an application of the book of Psalms, where it says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Maybe this has been the character of the relationship between the world and the church all along. It appears worldly progressivism is always about 50 years behind the times. The world's treasures are only secondhand. Its temporal fragile work being blown over and destroyed by the merest breath of the Holy Ghost. Its converts almost always refusing to be real disciples of the devil. Its leaders rarely being anything more than lukewarm for the doctrines of the world constantly tempted to faith by the awesomeness of creation and by the goodness of God. How does the church respond? We worship God. Worship is the overflow of the heart. The humble heart The holy life is full of grace, full of gratitude, full of wisdom. Where there is humility, God's work will be evident. Consider an account from our own Pentecostal history. You'll experience it a bit of deja vu if you reread an account of the Azusa Street Revival way back in the early 1900s, particularly the way the columnists for major publications like the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle understood the goings-on in that old Azusa Street warehouse. They were condescending, they were disparaging, especially of the fact that the Azusa Street congregation in that day consisted of blacks, whites, and Hispanics. Mixed worship troubled everybody, except the church. One hundred years later, columnists for the same exact publications cannot shout loud enough their support for the cause of minorities. But the virtue It's merely secondhand. It's an easy virtue to practice now that the church has already shown the way. That integration, not segregation, was the answer. Where was the San Francisco Chronicle in 1905 when Pentecost was but a tender branch, a root out of dry ground? The truth is they were standing where the world has always stood on important issues, in the dead center of public opinion. But the Christian church has been endowed with a wisdom far beyond its years because we are following a God who is all-wise. We're part of something far greater than just the sum of our parts, the sum of our members. There are countless examples of the church partaking in a wisdom. Its own members, its own preachers, did not even fully understand, even while the preachers were preaching it. We follow, though imperfectly, we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit wherever He goes, and we remind the world that every spirit must be tried. We routinely practice principles the world will need for a century or more to understand. And when the world finally does understand and invariably acts like it invented those practices and treats its benefactor, such as the church, like the enemy of progress, we've seen this due to pride. In what way have you seen pride surface in your own life? This is no surprise to God or to his church. The Apostle Paul said this would be the way of things. The church would be in front, piloting the way to a new creation. As the old creation groans, waiting for the sons of God. Romans 8 verse 19. He said the examples of the Old Testament were written for the church upon whom the ends of the world are come. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. But notice he did not say the church had come to the ends of the world. Rather, the ends had come to the church. But what ends was he talking about? He was talking about the end, the eschaton, or the age in which the Holy Spirit would rule, this age of peace, this age of innocence, this age where the prophets 
characterized a time where the wolf would lay down with the lamb and the child would walk unharmed over the place where the snake would sleep, where the swords of war would be transformed into instruments of agriculture and the reaper would have so much work to do he'd still be out of the fields gathering when it was time to sow again. In other words, in this eschaton, the enmity between races would end. Wars will cease. There will be a fullness of life and peace, and the people would be skilled in the art of goodness and forget the art of war. This, Paul insisted, is what has come to the church, the future. The church does not have to wait for the future. The future has already come to the church. The reason the church is always out ahead of the world is because the future, through the gifts of the Spirit, literally reaches back into the present to equip the church with the power the world will only know in the future. Last question. Have you ever been warned or become aware of something in prayer before it ever happened? Perhaps God told you that something would happen before it did happen. That's the power and the knowledge of God. It's wonderful to know we're fighting on God's side rather than on the other side. Knowing God has purposed us to win, has purposed us to be victorious. We choose to live our lives as offerings of praise and worship to him. He alone sits on the throne and he alone is ultimately in control. Let's wrap this up. Time travel, that's always been a dream of humanity. Suppose it was possible, and a traveler carrying technology from the 21st century went back to the 11th century and taught, let's say, this tiny kingdom of Armenia how to use and how to replicate this future technology. Before long, Armenia, no matter how small, would be leading the world. Well, just so, the Spirit has bestowed upon the church gifts that will only be fully available at the end of time. The gifts of the Spirit empower the church to live and to be witnesses of that blessed future right now in the present. If we're given tools of the future, we are also required to live the ethics of that end-time kingdom, which is why Paul became so rankled, there's a fun word for you, by church members who were going to a pagan judge to sue a brother. He heard about this and immediately his mind went to the future. He did not assert that going to a pagan court diminishes our witness, though there is truth there, but he complained that taking a lawsuit before a pagan judge was beneath the present dignity of our future reality. Paul said, guys, one day you are going to judge the world. Do you have to have somebody else judge between you and another brother? Many of his contemporaries wanted one covenant under the Messiah for the Jews and another one for the Gentiles. But Paul said no, because in the age to come, the wolf lays down with the lamb. Or in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, Christ is our peace. He has made both one. He broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the, the racism. For to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, Paul said, hey guys, we don't need a covenant for the Gentiles, one for the Jews, because in that age to come, there will be no Gentile, there will be no Jews. All of us will be together. Paul was always thinking about how the church should live in the present based on how we will live in the future. Which is exactly why when Azusa Street came, it was a characteristic of the age to come was present right from the start. This strange, otherworldly peace between races had settled unbidden over our spiritual forefathers. 
right in the middle of Jim Crow bigotry, God put on a show. Not a minute before, not a minute after, in the fullness of time, he stepped into an era steeped in old-fashioned worldliness and racism and prejudice and pride, and he took a reality that will be called the law of the land in the future and bestowed it on a small gathering of people he called his church. My fellow brother and sister, my fellow apostolic, my fellow disciple of Jesus, don't be troubled that the church, your church, is so different from the world. In this present age, that's really the point. In time, future Babel will secretly admire your stand so much so that it actually tries to build its own religion based on yours. This would be an outstanding time to pray. We're going to pray that God would help us to be humble, forgive us of our pride, be holy, forgive us of our sin, and pray God would help us to be the church he has called us to be especially if that means not being like the world, but being more like him, that we would have the courage and the faith to live in such a way. Lord God, I love you. Thank you for the privilege to be a part of your great church. Thank you for the privilege to be a part of a people who are called by your name and filled with your spirit. I pray God help us today. Forgive us of our pride. If we are walking in anything other than humility, please forgive us. And if we are self-righteous, please forgive us. Help us to live a life of humility, to walk in humility and holiness. Forgive us of our sin. Help us to live a life that honors and pleases you, that brings glory to you. Give us the courage and the faith to stand, especially in the face of others who decry the church and ridicule and even persecute the church. Help us rather, Jesus, to live a life that honors and pleases you, be more like you, even if it means being less like our world so our world will be more like you. I ask you to use us for your glory, to make disciples, not of ourselves, but of you, Lord, to draw others closer to you, Jesus, I pray, so we can all be more like you and ready for your coming. Help us to live today in light of your coming, in light of that future reality where we will live under your reign. I ask you in the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in to our God's Word for Life podcast. I hope this episode has been a help and blessing to you. Certainly, it's addressed several issues that we are dealing with right now in our culture, and I hope it's given you some direction on how you should continue to walk with God in the middle of our culture. If you would like to purchase a copy of the Student Guide so you can follow along as we go through each episode, you can certainly do so at godswordforlife.faith. You can also get a sneak peek at all of the the good resources that God's Word for Life has to offer. If you are coming to our annual general conference this week in Indianapolis, Indiana, I would love to meet you. Anybody who's listening to the podcast, you're going to be there. Please stop by. Ask for me. My name is LJ Harry. I'll be around the exhibit area or around the booth. You can reach out to me also on Facebook. My screen name there is lj.harry or Twitter and Instagram, LJ and Andrea, L-J-A-N-D-A-N-D-R-E-A. Let me know if this episode or this podcast as a whole is being a blessing to you. I'd like to say special thanks to all of the writers who write these lessons and give me the opportunity to share them with all of you. Next week, we're going to take a look at the lesson that is dated October 10th, 2021, and it's titled, What God Says is True, and it's taking a look 
at Luke chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. It's kind of getting us ready for the Christmas season a couple of months early, and it's going to deal with a promise that God made a long time ago. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you, and always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.